Before we start the show, I want to give you a limited time offer. If there is anything keeping you from subscribing to Digiday Plus, our premium membership program, this should help get you over the line. Just for you, our podcast listeners, um, for a limited time, we have a three-month subscription to Digiday Plus for a mere $49. That's 70% off. Um, Digiday Plus members get access to unlimited number of articles, exclusive research, and much more. You get invites to live podcast recordings, for instance. Visit digiday.com slash subscribe and use intro at checkout. That is I-N-T-R-O. I hope you give it a try. Recently, the unthinkable has become thinkable. There is now serious conversation about using government power to rein in tech platforms and even break them up. Presidential candidate Elizabeth Warren has endorsed this idea of breaking up the tech platforms, and this ensures that it will be an issue at the forefront of the public debate in the months to come. I'm Brian Marcy, and this is the Digiday Podcast. This week, I speak to Dina Srinivasan, who went from being an ad tech entrepreneur to writing about the antitrust challenges of the tech platforms. We discuss why antitrust is the way to deal with Facebook, why antitrust action isn't so crazy of an idea, and how the dominance of Facebook and Google is far different from the fleeting power of MySpace and Yahoo. Dina, welcome to the podcast. Brian, it's great to be here. Thank you. Okay, so we're doing this by Skype. We don't usually do Skype, but this is a special occasion. Um, explain for those who don't know, explain your background really quickly. Sure. So um, I was an entrepreneur before going to law school while an undergrad and ended up going to Yale Law and studying really most of most of my time was focused on antitrust. Um, and this probably had something to do with my business background. After law school, I uh, reverted back to business and I went into digital media started a company called Affidia, which brought transparency to a lot of the back-end trading that was happening in the digital media market, um, sold those tech assets to a division of WPP called Kantar Media SRDS, stayed there for about four years, and left in 2017 and decided to write about antitrust issues that I was witnessing or seeing in the industry. So how did your time in the ad world inform your um, you know, your scholarship when it comes to antitrust? Because, I mean, you saw the inside of, of how the digital media sausage is made. Yeah, that's a great question. I think that, you know, antitrust can be a very theoretical space to play in. And, um, uh, you know, unfortunately, I think these tech issues are quite complicated. The digital media market is quite complicated. So what I was hoping to bring to the table was uh, was sort of um, a nuanced understanding of the empirics in the market specifically. Okay, so for those who are not, you know, in antitrust uh, day in and day out, um, explain in layman's terms what it is meant to combat, because then we can get into how this intersects with um, the current tech landscape. Sure. So, you know, I think at the end of the day... Um, the free market is supposed to reflect what, what consumers want, right? And I was seeing this sort of um, something in the market which I did not think reflected what consumers want. And, you know, the, the, the specific issue that I take up is um, the tendency or the ability of a handful of big tech companies to track consumers as they move from site to site and collect and record and 
and sort of file that information in their back pocket. And I just thought that, the, you know, this is this is fundamentally a, a paradox. It's a paradox in democracy. It's a paradox in a democracy that the sort of has privacy uh, institutionally ingrained in its in its fabric and, you know, in, in the form of the Fourth Amendment. And um, here we all are, you know, here we are all operating under this idea that these tech and advertising markets reflect something that consumers want. And I think that's just fundamentally false. And when you see a market that is outputting something that you have millions of consumers trying to um, get out of, that, you know, these are fundamentally antitrust problems. Explain that a little bit more, because um, I understand the sort of societal implications, but I'm not completely certain why antitrust is the way to deal with this. I mean, people can just not use these services um, if they don't like Facebook tracking them and using that data in order to serve them ads. They can just stop using Facebook, right? Right. So, um, no, I would disagree with that. So antitrust fundamentally concerns itself with two fact patterns. One is monopolies. And that's when, you know, a company is so powerful in the market that consumers really don't have a choice um, or choice is significantly precluded in the market. The second sort of fact pattern that antitrust concerns itself with is when competitors in a market sort of agree to do something um, in unison against consumers. And, and this is sort of most typically reflected in, in sort of price-fixing conspiracies or where competitors agree to sort of increase prices or, or set prices. And so when you have either of those two fact patterns, um, you know, those are sort of fundamental antitrust patterns. Now, if you look at, for example, Facebook, um, you know, the, the argument that I make is that, look, in the 20th century, you had telephones and AT&T was widely understood to be a monopoly. And a monopoly is something that is um, technically defined under the law in, in sort of a, a commonsensical way. And what it really refers to is any product where consumers are not using other products interchangeably. So, you know, if I leave AT&T today, AT&T is my cellular provider, I can go to Verizon or I can go to Sprint. If you leave Facebook, what do we see consumers going to? We don't see them using Twitter interchangeably with Facebook. Um, we don't see them using text messages or text messaging interchangeably with sort of social media uh, in the form of Facebook. And so under this sort of understanding of what monopolies look like, Facebook looks very much like a monopoly. Mm -hmm. But is this a natural monopoly? Um, I, I, I would argue no. I know that this is Can a... Can you explain natural monopolies a little bit? I'm not, I'm not a lawyer, but at least I know what a natural monopoly is. Yeah, a, a natural monopoly is, um, is basically a business in a market where it really has to... It has to coalesce towards one sort of the most efficient outcome and one, com one company controls the entire market. So the, the easiest way to understand a very obvious natural monopoly is like um, railroads, right? It's mm -hmm. totally inefficient to have four different railroads setting rail tracks um, from New York to Los Angeles. It makes sense to just have one company set one track on physical property and then run on that one track. 
Um, so, um, you know, I, I... So under antitrust, like, natural monopolies are treated differently than... I don't know what the uh, the alternative is. Unnatural monopolies. Yeah, they are treated differently because the 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 answer is usually regulation and um, and even price regulation. So mm-hmm. you know the government might step in and say this is the price that you should charge and you can't charge more than this price. Okay, so th- you're saying that like Facebook is not, for instance, is not a natural monopoly. Well, I think that we have a parallel here to what we saw with AT&T. Um, you know, AT&T back in the day only allowed for one AT&T customer to make a phone call to another AT&T customer. And so if AT&T has a very large position in the market, and that is its business policy, that is going to tend towards a monopoly and foreclose anybody else from entering the space. But, you know, that was really a product of a business decision. So right now, it's very difficult for any other company to enter the space and compete with Facebook. But let's say, theoretically, Facebook allowed... um, you know, changed its sort of business rule and allowed um, its messages to be sent to other social networks or allowed you when you're posting something on Twitter to, to push it to Facebook. Now you don't have to have a Facebook account, but this interoperability would open up the market and, and basically uh, unravel the hold that Facebook has on the market. And mm-hmm. then we wouldn't see it looking like a natural monopoly anymore. So I'm sure you hear this, but I'll, I'll say it. Um, People used to talk this way about MySpace, right? I mean, people, you know, uh, uh, the VCs who like to tweet will pull up Fortune articles from 2005 that talked about uh, MySpace in these terms. Um, what? Why is this different? Well, I think that MySpace brings up an interesting point, and I um, go over this a, a bit in my my paper about Facebook. Um, You know, Facebook largely pushed MySpace out of the market at a time when Facebook was competing very hard on this concept of privacy. And, you know, um, it wasn't until Facebook, I mean, it wasn't until MySpace exited the market that Facebook unfolded a lot of its privacy representations. But, you know, MySpace, to to answer your question directly, was very similar to Facebook in that it was operating a closed network. And, you know, perhaps, as you know, the philosophy in Silicon Valley was to, to try to um, to win a race in a winner-take-all market and, and to make sure others couldn't compete. So this was a favored business model, which allows for high margins. So um, I would say like a couple years ago, the idea of breaking up a technology company, um, Facebook or Google or Amazon, would be considered kind of fringe like like this is it was not part of the mainstream discussion um and i think you were very early on a couple years ago with um talking about uh an antitrust case against facebook um this seems to be gathering a lot more momentum i mean what do you think has changed well you know i think in any market when you have um you have consumers that are not really providing consent or the market doesn't reflect what consumers are consenting to or are willing, willingly sort of purchasing or entering into transactions um, for that you have this bubble and this bubble risk that's in the market and it's just a matter of time before um, 
the pressure just gets too great and it starts to unravel. Now, I think in in our case, you know, um, a, a large instigating factor was probably the presidential election and and Cambridge Analytica. But you know, these are very familiar fact patterns that anybody in the industry um, would have been seeing a long time ago. I remember about five years ago, I was sitting in on a meeting and somebody was explaining how the um, uh, the ROTC was conducting very deep targeting um, for its recruitment and and you know it just it just really struck me as to as to you know how real the these implications are on on people on consumers on on families um, when this type of deep targeting works. I, I explain. I mean, just because I look Facebook and Google, they both built better mousetraps. They had more data, so they were able to do the kind of targeting that you saw. You know, you saw with you were within WPP. You saw what what advertisers want. They want to find the 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 customers that they're looking for, and they don't want to find the customers they're not looking for. And both Facebook and Google have proven amazingly good at that, right? Absolutely. So, uh, explain the 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 harm here. Because I think for years, when it's come to ad targeting, the industry has said, hey, no PII, uh, the direct mail guys are far sketchier, and where, where, are, where, are, the, where are the victims? Where's, where's the set of victims? People are getting stuff for free. They like Facebook. They use it all the time. Yeah, of course. So there, there's lots of questions that are baked into that question. So we kind of have to unravel it bit by bit. From a monopoly perspective, we don't really care what advertisers think because the, the product is, um, you know, what is the product? It's social networking. It's a communications product. The user is a consumer. And so from the when you when you look at the product, you're looking at the product market, then the question becomes, okay, you know, does this does Facebook look like a monopolist? And there's really two things that you can look at under law or economics, and that is um, price or quality. And in the current conversation, one of the things that I was noting was missing in, in sort of um, the conversation a couple years ago is, you know, the entire refrain was this, oh, but it's free, so therefore there's no problem, therefore consumers are happy, therefore there's no antitrust concern. And, you know, in economics, when you're measuring price movement or price differences by a monopolist, it's always price per constant quality. And so quality is really just the inverse, um, the inverse sort of measurement uh, unit that you can look at um, uh and from a quality perspective, that's when we can start looking at privacy and looking at data differences. And, and that's when we start to see the story of the monopolist come to light. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, politically, this has now become an issue. Elizabeth Warren has at least broached the topic of, um, of uh, the power of these technology companies. I mean, I know you don't really get, go into the, the political sphere, but, but how likely is it that some kind of antitrust action could, could possibly be taken against a Facebook or a Google? Well, I think that we have to remember here that antitrust action can really come from one of two sources. It can come from public enforcers, but it can also come from the plaintiff's bar. And, um, you know, we saw the tobacco industry led by class action attorneys that gave a voice to um, 
to American consumers. And so we really have two parallel tracks that this can really come down from. Um, I think the likelihood is very high at this point. I think the more that anybody's brain wraps their head around some of the dynamics in the industry to understand why, for example, Google and Facebook get almost every incremental ad dollar that enters the market, um, the higher the likelihood that antitrust litigation will is imminent. Um, but speaking to, to sort of Warren's recommendation, I think that... Um, Breakup uh, may be more difficult. Um, it definitely would be more difficult than in any sort of private suit. Um, breakup may be difficult for other reasons, even on the public side. But I think that what we have to focus on, or what you know, ultimately at the end of, at the end of the day, anybody has to focus on, is what problems are we trying to remedy in the market? What are the structural problems in the market that are that are creating friction and how do you remedy those problems? And I think the answers to those questions don't necessarily point to breakup. You know, we have to remember that um, the breakup of Standard Oil made Rockefeller uh, much wealthier. And and so sometimes it's just not the answer that, that, mm-hmm. that is effective. So what does a remedy then, a, a, a remedy look like? That, that, me, that makes for what you would think of as a, a healthier market for consumers, for competition, et cetera? Um, well, I think the top two, for example, with Facebook would be the message interoperability. So opening up the social network, allowing a Twitter user or users of other social networks or other companies that want to start a social network to post a message and, and post and, and basically push it to Facebook contacts without having to have a Facebook account themselves. Uh, I think that's number one. That is that is absolutely number one. It's the equivalent to forcing AT&T to allow AT&T customers to make calls to people that have a Verizon phone number. Until you allow people to cross-communicate across networks, the market is basically trapped in Facebook's favor. Um, I, think okay. that, I think that's the single biggest issue. I mean, will that really affect much? I could imagine Facebook being like, okay, it doesn't sound so bad. Um, but I also don't see how that would really impact their dominance if you could send a, a tweet to post on in, in your Facebook uh, feed. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that's an empirical question. I, uh, you know, they, they locked down their, their market. They've been increasingly locking down their market over the last number of years. They revoked the ability of, um, they revoked some cross-posting um capabilities that they had through one of their APIs, I think just in the last 12 months. Uh, I, I don't think that they would want to do that at all. And that would, I think that that would present very real market risk to them. The second thing that I might advocate for is to allow users to opt out of Facebook tracking them on sites off of Facebook. Okay, that that would have a big impact then. Yeah, I mean, that would have, you know, that would have a, a big impact. I think that, you know, in the law, there's something called a, 
a monopoly rent, which is if you're a monopolist and you got there innocently and the market just sort of tended towards that direction, you're really, you can really charge whatever price you want to charge, right? So if you sign up for Facebook and, you know, data extraction levels are very high and they ask for lots of personal information, they're going to use it for these following purposes. That's one thing. But if they've now mirrored their policies across other swaths of markets, so for example, I think Facebook um, code is embedded into 95% of news sites online, right? Now, um, this now looks almost like a horizontal restraint. It's really precluding competition across entire swaths of markets. And um, it gives Facebook an incredible leg up on other sellers of digital advertising. So even though we've been talking about the harm to consumers, this particular practice harms anybody else that's selling advertising. And it's not something that necessarily publishers, you know, want to do or do very happily. Okay. Um, So why Facebook and why not, say, Google? Like, why do you think the antitrust case against Facebook is stronger? I would think I mean, maybe it's because, you know, focusing on the advertising market, but like, I would think Google would be, you know, particularly with how they've intertwined DoubleClick, um, that Google would be a more likely case than Facebook. Um, yeah, I think that there there's a case to be made against Google as well. Absolutely. I've been talking about both of these issues since about 2008. Um I just happen to to want to write about Facebook first, but so what's that? Yes, you're correct. I mean, I know you you have a very considered case against Facebook, but uh, but what's the case uh, for Google to be subject to antitrust? Well, I think that they've been using their market power in one market to then um, to then build you know their market power in other markets. So you know they started off with a monopoly in search. And then they used the position um, in the search market to then build out AdX and AdSense. And now they have, you know, a very dominant position in that market. Then they use the data from both of those markets to build out um, analytics platforms um, and, and, you know, provide analytics to publishers. So it's really this pattern of using a very dominant position in one market and, and sort of um, building upon that to then build a monopoly position in a second market. Okay. Um, I think it would seem like trying to disentangle double click from Google at this point would be really difficult. Um, it'd be pretty disruptive. Yeah, to be honest, I haven't sort of wrapped my head around that, but at a very high level, yes. Yeah. Um, but with Facebook, maybe it would be, um, maybe it would be cleaner. So so what do you think is um, the sort of going forward um, where this story goes next? I mean, it's, it's in the political realm, so it's getting a lot more attention, that's for sure. Yeah, I think it's, it's, it's sort of hard to, to sort of um, predict where it's going to land. I'm encouraged, you know, yesterday's testimony shows extreme, uh, you know, um, solidarity uh, from both sides of the aisle to, to try to figure out some kind of federal privacy legislation. Um, you have privacy legislation in California going into effect. Um, you have now antitrust that's going to become more and more active um, from a legal perspective. 
So I think we'll we'll definitely see an impact to these business models, Mm -hmm. which I don't think reflect what consumers want in the market. And it might take a while to see a very real correction. Yeah. Do you think the experience of GDPR and the impact that GDPR has had, uh, good or bad, is like either a cautionary tale when it comes to governments getting involved in this, or it's a sign or it's a model to follow? I'm I'm not sure. I think it's hard to say. (laughs) I think it's hard to say still. Um, But you do think governments can... Um, because I know, I mean, you've heard, you know, I'm sure in Silicon Valley, when you bring these things up, um, a lot of people are very dismissive of the idea that governments, uh, can do anything that would not just be completely ham handed when it comes to the, these areas. Yes, I, I do. I do share that concern. I do share that concern as well. Um, and I am very much a free market thinker. So I hear you. Uh, I have been a tech entrepreneur. So I get it. But I do think that the market is spewing out some really warped outcomes. And, um, you know, some tweaks at a 10,000 foot level do need to be made to make these markets more efficient. And I don't think anybody in retrospect would look back at the telecommunications market and say, you know, we shouldn't have opened it up to, to sort of competitors. I don't think anybody would take that position. Right. Um, Okay, Dina, we're going to leave it there, but thank you so much for taking the time today. Thank you, Brian. Thank you all for listening. This podcast was produced by Aditi Sangal. If you liked our show, please leave us a rating on iTunes or wherever you listen to this podcast. Uh, You can also write me. I am brian at digiday.com or tweet me. I am at bmorrissey. I look forward to hearing from you. This week, I want to give a shout out to Ryan Heafy. Um, He took to iTunes and he gave us a five-star rating. My God. And he said, in listening to the learnings from tenured media folks at Digiday, it has greatly helped advance our lessons learned and set us up for success. We have successfully connected with many media and marketing executives by following up on Digiday Podcast. There's no better time than when it's most relevant to continue to listen every day and be sure to walk away with something at the end of each podcast and put its use. Thank you very much, Ryan. Um, that was very kind of you to leave that detailed review. Um, so please do uh, leave your own review and we will be back next week. Mm-hmm.